ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to the first of our summer listening health reports with me, Norman Swan on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turrbal land. And for the first part of the show, I'll be in a challenging situation trying out a popular health therapy. Stepping in when you're ready. Calming down that breath. <sighs> okay. Slowing it down. <laughs> Talk about triggering. I like your uh, your quick pivot for not swearing there, but Norman, I don't have a clue what I'm listening to here. Well, what you're listening to is an ice bath session that I went to about 10 days ago. Why? Well, everybody else is doing it. There's a lot of things being claimed for it. And I thought, well, I'll try it for myself. And I went down to an eastern suburbs beach in Sydney where they do this a couple of times a week. So, Deb, I am crapping myself here. Is that common? Yeah, yeah. That's generally the response that I get. When I tell people out and about that I run ice bath sessions, everyone says, I can't do it. It's way too terrifying, so... And do they stay terrified all the way through or it resolves itself? So generally, that's why we do the breath work first. So the breath work basically takes you from a sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight-flight stress state. Yeah, I want to run away from this ice bath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is where you feel more calm. So you're diluting your body. Yeah. No, no, no. (laughs) You're just helping yourself reframe thoughts and moving out of that adrenaline state where you're feeling super stressed so that then you can get out of the head, connect into the body meeting me on the bottom of your next exhale. So talk to me about this breath work, Norman, this idea of like kind of gaining control over your breath to kind of handle this incredibly extreme environment. Well, this is the method promoted by a Dutch entrepreneur called Wim Hof, who by the way... The iceberg guy. Iceberg guy who goes for half marathons in the Arctic and goes swimming with the icebergs. And he's been promoting this for a long time. He's a worldwide phenomenon. It's huge. He's not a scientist, though, but he sort of pioneered this and then it's sort of taken off and people are then sciencing it after the fact. There's science before this. I mean, they've been studying cold immersion for decades now. But Wim Hof has popularised it. And the, the beginning of the Wim Hof method is breath work. And it's a good thing because your breathing is what goes a bit out of control when you go into the bath. Hold. Two. Three. Out. Okay, so I'm so super stressed, so let's make it worse. What's the worst thing that's happened to somebody who's come to one of your workshops? They've got tingly fingers and toes. Pretty serious. All right, okay. I think I can cope with that. Worst things could happen, potentially, although with a two-minute immersion, which is what they keep it strictly to, the risk is low. But we spoke to Mike Tipton, so Professor Mike Tipton at the University of Portsmouth, and he's a world authority on cold immersion and what happens. We're a tropical animal. We want to be naked in air at 28 degrees Celsius, which is what most people are booking for their holiday. So if you take that tropical animal, air breathing, and you drop it into water, it's a pretty serious stress and stimulus. And we respond to that with a sympathetic-driven, nervous system-driven fight-or-flight response. When you put the face into the water, you get a parasympathetic, the opposite arm of the autonomic nervous system, which is trying to slow everything down. It's an oxygen-conserving response. But as far as the heart's concerned, when you've got the whole body in the water, including the face or the face being splashed, you've got two inputs. You've got one trying to accelerate the heart and make it beat harder, the sympathetic fight-or-flight cold shock response, and you've got one trying to slow it and decrease the strength of contraction. And those two inputs conflict. And that's when you see, particularly after breath-holding, a cardiac arrhythmia 
so people can have a heart attack. Interestingly, the ice bath phenomenon with responsible people like Deb doing it, they do not immerse your face. You just go in up to your neck because there is this difference when you do that. The thought is that for people who are doing a, you know, extended cold water swimming and with the face underneath, the gasping that you get can cause you to inhale water and you can get cardiac strain and cardiac arrest. So this is in a bit more controlled environment. What are the purported health benefits or what's the attraction here? It depends. There are some people who believe that when you've had a heavy training session, that going into an ice bath improves muscle recovery and maybe muscle growth. There's contradictory evidence on that. Some people believe it settles down your immune system and reduces inflammation, which is where the living younger, longer idea comes from. That's the Wim Hof notion. And then some people do it just simply for the psychological benefit. They are scared, like me. They meet a challenge and they conquer the challenge. So there is a rush element to it. What about other mental health benefits? Well, the bragging response. Don't underestimate underestimate the power of gloating. Well, this is like an extended brag on the health report. Um, You get this rush and this stress and you get out of it and you do feel more alive and happy after having done it. (laughs) So what people are experiencing is a non-exercising way, i.e. a thermal drive rather than a metabolic drive, that releases a lot of stress hormones. You may have experienced this uh, as well, Norman. You know, you get quite anxious about it. Anxious about it? I was shitting myself. (laughs) (laughs) So stress hormones, is that a good thing then? Well, yeah, if it's limited and it's not over an extended period. I've talked about you know, the supposed immune improvements, inflammation, muscle recovery, all of which are a bit controversial as to whether or not they actually occur. But I also asked Mike about uh, the danger side. On the danger side, we have a lot of evidence, good quality science telling us about the risks. The beneficial side is still largely anecdotal evidence. That's still evidence, but it needs to be followed up with definitive studies. So I can't wait any longer. This is it. No, I think it's your turn. So what I do, deep breath. Well, nothing could be more definitive, Norman, than you doing it yourself. We haven't actually talked about what the experience was like for you yet. What was going through your head as you were about to lower yourself into the ice bath? Don't do it. Don't do it, was the main thing that's going through my head. Um, I was interested in what the experience would elucidate, but you just don't know what you're going to feel like and experience when you go through it. So here's what it was a bit like. Stepping in when you're ready. So at this point, I'm gasping and breathing quite heavily. So we're just going to slow that breath down, breathing in through the nose and out. And I could feel my heart slowing down at the same time as I wanted to speed up, which is the autonomic conflict that Mike Tipton talked about. Do you feel like you're regaining a sense of control through this? Slowly. So it's starting to feel a bit better by now. But now I've got a piece of camera. Well, I can't pretend that it's not cold. It is freezing. Not quite as freezing as you think, though. Are you halfway through already, Norman? I don't know what you were talking about. This is going very fast for me. And it's probably the longest two minutes of my life. Thank goodness for that. So then you run into the ocean to warm up. You do, paradoxically, yeah. But I must say, look, my reflection of it is that when we talked to the people who came along, 
nobody was coming for the putated physical effects. Almost everybody we spoke to, in fact, if not everybody, were coming for the psychological benefits. And I must say, you know, I suppose it's a bit like bungee jumping. You go into it and you get this rush. Probably there's some benefit, who knows, from the ice itself. And having done it, you feel better for having done it. You certainly feel more alive and tingly. It was exhilarating. I actually feel so much better after doing that. So it was just like you couldn't think of anything else while you were doing it. It was like that concentration of trying to survive for those two minutes. So, yeah, it was an experience. I loved it. If I can be comfortable in the uncomfortable for two minutes out of my whole day in the ice, I try to take that mindset into other things. For someone who's an overthinker as well, which I think is me, being in the ice forces me into feeling rather than thinking, because you have to feel, because it's cold. Did you take that with you throughout the day as well, Norman? Did you kind of feel, like, energised for the rest of the day? Well, if not the rest of the next couple of hours, felt pretty good, yeah. You get a bit habituated to it, I think, once you do it repeatedly. But nonetheless, I don't think I met anybody who really liked the two minutes in the ice bath that was the before and after that they liked. I feel like I'm not loving it as much <laughs> as you. you just got to calm that breath down. And again, I tried with Mike Tipton to explore what might be the motivation for this. Certainly in high-income countries, we've become so comfortable. You know, we've got air conditioning, we've got heating, we've got it in the car, we've got it in the office, we've got it in the home. And we've become what I would call thermostatic. Uh, we hardly ever change our temperature. And yet you need to challenge these systems in order to maintain their functionality. Everybody knows that about the musculoskeletal system, use it or lose it. They're just different ways of just perturbing the system and not remaining comfortable. Okay, so if we are wanting to challenge ourselves in a safe way, what kind of safety things are we talking about? Well, I think you do do it in a class that's supervised. You don't do it by yourself at home. And out. Just focus on my voice, focus on the breath. You can do I think it. probably the breath work is good for you because it does relax you and get you into a frame of mind. You need to do it with somebody who's sensible and strictly limits the time you're in and you don't get any machismo happening where we're going to plunge in and stick our head under. Sticking your head under is really not a good idea because the first thing that you get is a gasp. And so if your head's under, you're gasping and you could be swallowing water. So just being sensible about it, doing with somebody who knows what they're doing. And if you've got a cardiac problem, you really do need to talk to your GP before you do it. And that's probably basically it. Do you have to do this, though, to be healthy? Like, isn't there some kind of nice, even keel, happy medium? Yeah, you go out and do a run, exercise, eat modestly, have frugal days, maybe even do a bit of intermittent fasting. There's lots of ways to do this. You don't have to do ice baths. But for some people, it actually you know, turns them on. You get a rush of dopamine and serotonin when you jump out of the bath. You forget about the experience and you come back the next time. Right, so it's having triumphed over adversity. <laughs> yeah, so it really helps you change your relationship with stress. Next four, ready please. Ten, nine, eight. So are you going to do it again? Not immediately, no. Oh, go I'll, on. I don't think I'll hold off, but um, <laughs> I wouldn't be so scared next time. I know what I'm going to experience. So all I can say to you is just repeat, do not do this at home by yourself. And if you've got heart disease, probably don't do it at all. And have you been wearing a scarf ever since? <laughs>
hasn't ever quite recovered from the cold. That's right. We used to call it in Glasgow chittery bite. In Glasgow, actually, <laughs> funny enough, we used to go down to the beach in summer and it was like cold weather and you'd put up a windbreaker, you'd be wearing a thick jumper and you'd go into the water and swim and come back and have hot soup. So you know, maybe it's... Oh, here you are telling us you're a novice, but actually you've been training yeah, for this since childhood. Hardened from childhood, absolutely. And now, as they say, to something completely different and which may be confronting for some listeners. It's still true that talking about death has replaced sex as the big taboo, but new research has found a brainwave signature that might indicate hyper-awareness in the minutes before some of us die. Associate Professor Jimo Borgigan works in integrated physiology at the University of Michigan Medical School, Ann Arbor, and led this work on what are called gamma waves in the brain. Mm, thank you. What are gamma oscillations? What do we know about them in normal life? Gamma oscillation is where the frequency is higher than 25 hertz. That is 25 oscillations in a second. So it's very fast. So this is measured on the electroencephalograph? Correct. EEG. So if you or I were lying having an EEG done, what proportion mm-hmm. of our oscillations would be gamma oscillations in normal life, just when we're lying there peacefully? Oh, very little. When you're relaxed, not doing intense thinking, conscious activities and gamma activities are actually a very small portion of your overall brain activity. So if you give me a maths test to do, do the gamma oscillations go up? Gamma oscillation go up when you encounter unexpected situations when you recognize a face in a crowd or alerted to some danger, for instance, then your gamma activity goes up. So it's an indication of an elevated conscious activity. And also an indication of stress in some situations. Correct. Give me a little bit of the history of looking at brainwave activity in people who are dying or near miss deaths. That's a really good question, actually. <laughs> I wasn't hired to study electrical activity with the brain. I was studying circadian rhythms. But one accidental discovery led me to wonder how healthy person or healthy animals die. We know very little about the entire dying process in terms of brain activity. So we know that somebody collapsed to the ground, seemingly losing all senses, and there's no activities, and it's not walking, talking. So we thought the brain is no longer working. At the same time, I learned that there is something called a near-death experience. When people describe this as something realer than real. So this is when they've had a cardiac arrest. It's almost consistent what they say, I feel my body leaving itself and then coming back in. Correct. That tells me that unless that near-death experience is truly from extracorporeal sources, if it comes from the brain, that must mean from the time you collapse to the ground until you die, the brain must be undergoing something very fascinating that represents neurosignatures of consciousness. It's hard to study in humans, though. You can't be there for every cardiac arrest. That is so true. And we were able to do this in animal models. But in animals, even if we do resuscitate them, we could not talk to them to see what they experienced. So in humans, we then thought maybe the withdrawal of life support in comatose patients may be close to a situation of letting somebody die in ICU setting. Which is still not necessarily normal because the assumption is that if you're moving life support, the brain is so affected that it's not going to maintain life if you remove the support. Yeah, when we went into the study, we just thought, 
if we study enough these patients, maybe some of them might have residual activity, may show some interesting or intense activities. And so we didn't really expect much because if you look at the four patients we looked at, they were all judged beyond medical help. So the brain shows no sign of having any activity, at least overt activity that nothing is showing. So we just decided, well, we're going to analyze EEG activity anyway to see what we find. And what we're shocked. What did you find? We were shocked. This massive activation of gamma activity as soon as we removed the ventilator. So in the four patients. But this is a small study. Was it in all four patients? No, we studied four patients in detail. So we followed their dying process literally second by second by examining both EKG activity as well as EEG activity. The electrocardiogram to see what the heart's doing. Correct. Electrocardiogram using the technique we invented in the lab called electrocardiogram matrix. And we were very surprised to find two of the four patients showed very unexpected, very marked surge of a gamma activity. And what was happening with the heart, given yes. that you were coordinating the two pieces of data? Yes, we think the two pieces of data really go hand in hand. So what happened to the heart is that as soon as you remove the ventilator, as you could imagine, if the patient had an intact autonomic nervous system, then they should try to gasp, you know, looking for air, right? The brain say, oh, give me some oxygen to breathe. So they autonomic system may be activated. So this is indeed the case for two of the four patients who had a gamma oscillation activated. Their heart rate increased during the initial phase as soon as you remove the ventilator. And in the same two patients, we saw the activation of the gamma oscillation. Did they take, I'm sounding so macabre, but did they take longer to die than the other two? No, actually no. So all four patients died within 30 minutes. So the very first patients that showed very dramatic activation of gamma oscillation died within 10 minutes after a ventilator was removed. So the question that everybody listening to this conversation is asking now, does that mean they had a period of hyper-awareness before they died? For the two of four patients, yes, I believe so. But of course, we'll never know because they did all die. So we'll never find that out. But uh, there were neurosignatures of a consciousness, and we are pretty sure of that. Is there any yes. other research from anywhere else in the world that supports what you're saying in human research? Not by the same kind of method, because our study probably is the first to follow the dying process of any human being second by second from the time that heart, I mean, the life support was withdrew. But there was a, one study published last year in journal Frontiers of Aging Research, and that study showed very small activation of gamma activity. But the dying process of that person was not followed continuously and the EKG was not monitored or analyzed. So we don't know exactly what the heart was doing during that process. So at the moment, you've got two of your patients and one patient in another study. So the best you can say is there's a signal there that needs further research. If it's true and does happen... Could this explain the near-death experience that you go through this acute stress, your body mm-hmm. is temporarily mm-hmm. dying, and the, the gamma surge makes you think that you are left your body? The neurosignatures we discovered showing in our paper does have a correlation with neurosignatures in studies that show, for instance, out-of-body experience, for instance, visual activation, auditory activation, for instance, speech perception. 
which is all clustered in the back half of your brain, okay, in the posterior half of the brain, in the place that's called a TPO junction. That's been really studied by a number of labs and showing that it's an anatomical location for the minimum neural cord as a consciousness. So I'm pretty confident that this study really, in a way, just lays the foundation for further studies. I doubt included every single subjective experiences that other people experience, because there are millions of people experience near-death experiences. So I think that I doubt this particular patient, even if, even if she survived, she would be able to tell every single type of subjective experience. We definitely need a study that is showing from survivors. Okay, So I wish that if the two of the four patients survived and tell a story, that would be stronger evidence to show that neurosignatures we discovered is truly represent a near-death experience. So since we don't have that piece yet, so more studies need to be done. Well, I can't say this has been the most comfortable interview I've ever done, but it's been fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Associate Professor Jimo Borjigan works in integrated physiology at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. Keeping up the energy to exercise isn't always easy and can be even more difficult for people recovering from a traumatic brain injury. Their exercise plan can either help rehab or set them back. Reporter Shelby Trainer went to the brain injury unit at Sydney's Liverpool Hospital where they run a program to motivate patients at a critical time. And so when the bike powers, off he goes. My nickname is Bilal the Adrenaline Junkie. So I'm a adventure freak. Pressure's on Bilal. Bilal El-Jamal is the perfect person to put this new kind of physical therapy to the test. Yeah, he's trying to beat the ghost rider. Because this self-described adrenaline junkie is competitive, even when he's in competition with a computer-generated avatar. You got it, See, Bilal is riding a bike hooked up to a video game designed to motivate him to pedal harder and faster. Oh, second off your best <laughs> Very, very, very good. He's not just doing it for the thrills. He's in recovery from a traumatic brain injury. On the 14th of October 2020, I was on a uh, small, simple motorbike without a helmet and a car hit me. I fell on the ground and I hit my head and I had internal bleeding inside my head. After the accident, Bilal was in a coma for 17 days. I woke up and I couldn't talk nor walk nor swallow, nothing at all. He was in Lebanon at the time and after some initial therapy, he decided to move to Australia to further his recovery. That's how Bilal ended up at Liverpool Hospital in southwest Sydney as a participant of an ongoing trial to gamify rehabilitation. My name's Kavya Pili. I'm one of the senior physiotherapists here at the Brain Injury Unit. Kavya is also the lead investigator for the gamification research trial. We're always looking at ways to get our patients to perform their best. And one of the things that we really noticed is that our patients who are engaging in fitness activities, they tend to get quite bored and they're not putting in as much effort. And it's even harder for our patients who've had a brain injury and have difficulty paying attention and difficulty keeping motivated. So the team at Liverpool Hospital, alongside experts at Western Sydney University, developed a game to capture and maintain motivation in patients. Participants jump on a recumbent bike, the same as you might have seen at your local gym, 
But what's different here is the screen mounted at eye level. On it is a computer-generated avatar developed to mimic the rider's speed. Would you like to see it in action? I would love to see it in action. Yeah, of course, Bilal, do you want to be our... Our model. <laughs> what they do is they pedal on the bike and they see themselves pedaling on this screen on a racetrack. They've got a resting lap where they're riding at a comfortable pace. But normally, because it's a resting lap, he likes to stay quite comfortable. Yes. <laughs> then it says time lapse, and then they have to go as fast as they can. Once they do a time lap, they then get another resting lap, and then there's another time lap. And this time, in the second time lap, they've got a ghost rider that was riding at their previous pace, trying to get them to maximise their speed and they're trying to beat their ghost rider. It's a constant motion of them cycling at a slow pace and then cycling at a really quick pace. Almost. With the aim of them keeping their heart rate up the whole time. Dr Goff Loy is a research support fellow at Western Sydney University and Liverpool Hospital's biomedical engineer in residence. I scope unmet medical needs and find technological solutions to their problems. Dr Loy's job has been to develop the hardware for this trial, making sure the bike connects up with the game and vice versa. We needed something to incentivise and encourage those in rehabilitation to put a little bit more effort in, to be more motivated during a very critical phase of their rehabilitation. Patients who've had a traumatic brain injury aren't just pedalling on a bike to regain strength and endurance. This physical activity also helps with cognitive recovery. Research suggests gamification also promotes cognitive recovery by activating the brain's reward centre and firing up new neural connections. For Bilal, the game and his own competitiveness pushed him further along in recovery than he thought possible. Each day I was breaking my record. I was also increasing the level of uh, riding the bike. So I was, uh, first I was at level 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Even on his final day at the brain injury unit, he wanted to give the game one last effort. And I put it on level 15, which was the hardest level. But uh, I did it. I broke my record. I got it in 28.6 seconds which was incredible for me. Yeah, so motivated for me. From 37 seconds to finish the lab to 28.6 seconds to finish the lab. I don't think anyone's been able to beat that since then. <laughs> Before uh, using the game, I would sit on the bike and there's nothing to, no record to break. And that's what I love to do. Physiotherapist Kavya Peely again. When they have the game in front of them, they could be cycling for 30, 40 minutes, as opposed to previously would it just be 10 or 15 and they'd be like, I'm done. And what we're noticing as well, that they're cycling at much faster speeds and their heart rate has been elevated for majority of the time. Having a visual cue and a visual prompt gets them to push themselves a bit harder. I think it's like when you're playing a computer game, you keep working until you get the outcome. But this trial isn't just about anecdotes. The team is in the middle of collecting the data they need to prove gamification is improving outcomes for patients, so it might be used more broadly in the future. We're still in the process where we're collecting data, so I'm not allowed to give too much. But what I can say is that we are noticing that they are spending longer on the bike and that in most cases 
their heart rate measures are on the higher end, which is where we want them to be. This is a good case of us being researchers, being able to do something that has impact and and is being used. Because the other thing we hear is that there's interest from the community in perhaps moving this into clinics and running it at home. And so I, I think that's all positive from our perspective in terms of where this might be going. While the main goal of this trial is to increase motivation among patients and as a result improve outcomes, the competitive nature of the game draws in the therapists as well keeping them engaged as enthusiastic cheerleaders on the sidelines. You're going to give it one more go? Yeah. All right, here we go. The main thing is the motivation, which they give to all the people that come here, and it's really honest. I could see in their face, I could see. Oh, so close! They want me to succeed. They want me to break my record. Thank you. Health reporter Shelby Trainer with that story. And that's all for today. Catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.